0: This is The PPC Show. I'm your host, Paul Wicker, and we just finished up an interview with Chris Gower. He is the author of a few books, most recently, The Zen Marketer's Guide to Growth, Balancing Data and Intuition. He also happens to be the founder and CEO of Wider Funnel, based up in Canada. We talked a ton about the psychology of the purchasing decision that your users or consumers are making, so this show is a little bit different, no PPC tactics, but instead, much more the psychology behind why people buy and how to reduce some of those barriers so that they buy a little bit more. We record this podcast Tuesdays at 10 a.m. out of the AdStage headquarters. You could find more episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you want the headlines in ad tech, head over to blog.adstage.io. All right, enjoy the episode. All right, so welcome to the PPC show. We're on with Chris Gower, who a lot of you probably know because he wrote a book called You Should Test That a few years ago, which is very big in the CRO uh, circles. And then also is, uh, are you the CEO of Wider Funnel? I believe you are. Yeah, that's right. I'm just making sure. Um, So thank you for coming on today and talking about CRO, Chris. Great, well thanks Paul, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And today we're going to talk a little bit less about specific tactics tactics for paid, uh, like changing your paid campaigns, budgets and bids and extensions, and a little bit more about what happens after the traffic comes into the funnel, and then maybe how you'd influence your paid uh, or how you'd optimize your maybe landing pages or websites. So it's a little bit of a different take on what we usually talk about, but it will be a learning experience uh, for me as well as the folks listening. So I'm excited about this. So let's start with CRO. So you wrote a book three years ago when CRO really wasn't an acronym. Anyone knew what it meant. So what do you think changed in the last three years that suddenly every conference people are talking about kind of CRO? Well, you know, it felt like
1: uh, just watching a slow motion ripple going through the industry over the last sort of 10 years um, where, you know, when we started Wider Funnel or when I started Wider Funnel back in 2007, uh, very few people understood the concept, and and CRO didn't exist as a term, and and really we were educating the market back then, and, and started by speaking with the people who would kind of understand what we were talking about. We, I started talking at at um, analytics conferences, and and then moved into search marketing conferences, and, into, and then into SEO, and and then into sort of affiliate marketing, and then it moved out into sort of more uh, UX and brand marketers, and now everyone in marketing understands this as a concept, it's kind of rippled out to, from, from very high measurement focused people out to the more general who understand that the insights are valuable. And I still think there's so much more potential. It's going to keep rippling uh, beyond that. But, uh, but it's been a long sort of education process of moving everyone where suddenly now it seems like everyone understands this and talking about it, but it's, it's taken a few years to get there.
0: And you, so you've been to all these different conferences. I have to imagine the affiliate conferences were the most crazy of all of them. Where did somebody have like <laughs> the best drinks of all conferences?
1: Uh, you, well, you know what? They're, they're uh, it's marketing conferences. I, I think as a as a rule, uh, really push the envelope on on the drinking uh, variety and quantity uh, <laughs> of, of a lot of the conferences out there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very true. I always, like. Uh, um, when, you know if you're on the circuit you speak at a lot of these things and uh, a lot of times you kind of get in spend some time there and get out um, and i had a, a brief stint when i was kind of speaking at a bunch of conferences and i was always amazed at how like grown people would just treat these things like they were crazy vacations and they would be so hungover in the morning the next day yeah. and i would be like how can you sit in this chair at you know 9 a.m you know well yeah raging hangover
1: Exactly, and I would I would uh, really ask, uh, you know, sort of negotiate with the conference organizers to at least put me at the 11 a.m. Or, or later sessions because uh, th- that would uh, be a trend at least after day one uh, of a lot of these events. But, you know, some of them are growing up, and some of the conferences are, are less uh, party and, and more uh, content uh, these days, but there's still still the fringes of, of uh, I guess, I guess some, you know, what it seems like is some, in the lower level, tactical level of marketing, don't get a lot of time off, it seems. And so these are really their only time to, to cut loose a bit, which is, is good. It's good for them to have, have some of that time.
0: As a general rule, if you put people in a hotel, they just it's a vacation. No matter why they're there, I think it's a vacation. So That's true. It <laughs> that must apply. Um, and talk a little bit about the book writing process. How did you decide, I mean, as a kind of analytics guy, that a book was the best way to get this information out?
1: <clears throat> yeah, well, at the time, uh, I resisted it for for a while because, um, you know, it was really focused on building wider funnel uh, as, a, as a company and training the team and, and growing strategists. But uh, Wiley had been asking for a couple of years to... but they, they really wanted a, a book on this topic and, and wanted us to share what we were learning. Um, and so I... Uh, and, and realized that a lot of, uh, you know... If we were going to influence the conversation around CRO, uh, this was a way to do it and to have our physician and my perspective out there in the market and really use it as, as a conversation piece or a conversation starter anyway. Because uh, what I saw in the market were uh, the conversion optimization industry really getting siloed into the wrong places, either into sort of the side of someone's desk as an analyst or um, into sort of a, a, a so-called best practices or tips and tricks kind of approach where people were uh, calling themselves conversion optimizers when really they were just giving you top of mind uh, advice from what they think might work and I believe that that there's actually a rigor and a process and a methodology that that conversion optimization professionals could use and I, I use the word professional intentionally because it's not just sort of a, a, a shouldn't be a schlocky kind of um, off the top of your head kind of a kind of um, methodology there needs to be some some uh, some professionalism brought to it. So that's what I was trying to bring: is to advance the concept of framework thinking and thinking at a higher level and actually answering powerful business questions rather than just you know testing button color um, and and headline font size, which is what a lot of people were doing back then.
0: Right. The rise of the growth hacker that uh, just changes random elements on the page, exactly. changes some CSS, yeah. and then says there's a 10% increase in signups. Right. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that framework. Uh, I assume you're talking about the Infinity optimization process, which you cover uh, pretty pretty well in the book. I think you even trademarked the term. Um, so talk a little bit about kind of the framework and then the process.
1: Yeah, well, actually, so Infinity is is the evolution of the of the process. It's kind of a compilation of the of the frameworks um, that we've been developing over the last ten years. And and so Infinity optimization process is the latest version that. Um, shows the different mindsets and pieces of information that are important to optimizing experiences and optimizing a, a real growth program. So um, within Infinity there are individual frameworks that answer specific questions. So for example the first framework I started with way back um, in the day was to answer a question, how do I understand the mindset of my consumer or my customer, or my prospect, when they're viewing a marketing piece, when they're interacting with a, a marketing touch point, whether it's a landing page or an ad or whatever. And doing uh, we did a, a lot of research and, and through a bunch of testing uh, developed this model called the lift model, which essentially just categorizes all of the different uh, conversion barriers and persuasion opportunities into six factors that a, a marketer can use to understand the mindset of their customer when they're sitting on a page and to look for those barriers to conversion. So the six factors are value proposition, uh, relevance, clarity, anxiety, distraction, and urgency. And a lot of people have heard of the lift models become quite popular, but um, but it, it was designed to answer a specific question. How do I uh, evaluate marketing touch points? And since then we've developed a whole bunch of other frameworks to answer the questions that we come along as organizations are trying to enable this kind of growth process. Uh, and one of them, another one is the PI framework and it was developed, at uh, wider funnel to answer the question, how how do I prioritize my effort? Where should I start? Right, and that's one of the most common questions we get. And so, it, we have we evolved this uh, set of factors to prioritize effort, which we found to be one of the most important things that organizations can do to focus their energy in the right place. And PI stands for potential importance and ease. And by evaluating all of the uh, opportunities they have based on those three factors, we found that that they can uh, find the real opportunities, the real gold in in their you know, you know, marketing touch points and get a much higher ROI on their effort. And so all of these various frameworks now sit within this infinity optimization process which recognizes that there are two separate mindsets in optimization and both of them are very important. Um, one is the expansive which mindset which we call explore and the other is the reductive mindset which we call um, uh, validate, and and in in the midst of those, they work together in an alternating fashion to produce growth and insights, which I call these profitable aha moments, where where we learn something about the customer and also in, in improve our our revenue and our um, marketing efficiency. So that's sort of a, a very quick high level overview of it. Um, when and really what we've what we're tr- I'm trying to advocate is that. This process bakes into the organization what I believe is the most important mindset for growth marketers. And I'm, I'm calling the mindset the Zen marketing mindset lately. I've been sort of evolving this idea uh, of, of a marketer that embraces the dichotomy between the expansive, um, uh, intuitive, you know, uh, idea generation mindset and the reductive, rigorous, analytical, measurement-focused mindset. And I think both of those are very different but important. And it's, it's difficult for marketers to to have both of those competing uh, approaches, but it's, it's important that they do so.
0: Well, I think we heard uh, the title for book number two, The Zen Marketer. Um, that's going through the different models it makes me want to remind people, you can or tell people, you can go to widerfunnel.com, and a lot of these frameworks are on your website. There's some videos. Uh, so if you're hearing this for the first time it's a lot it's kind of like my uh, girlfriend listens to Tony Robbins every now and then I listen in and it's like the seven steps of affirming you're this and on step four there's four pieces and then uh, I just get lost I was able to follow along but I'm cheating and looking at the website too Um, so I just want to put that out there for folks who probably said wow that was a lot of deep stuff so and let's dig into one of the pieces you touched on which was kind of you know, you talk about addressing some of these factors like clarity and urgency and anxiety. Um, well, let's stick with the kind of negative ones, the kind of anxiety and distraction. Um, and you know, you talk about kind of anyone who's been in the ad industry for a while, even if you're building old print ads. You know, you talked about putting factors into the ad that made people feel secure and built confidence in them uh, and credibility with your brand. Um, how do you really measure these types of things? Do you have any ways to get some insight to the impact these changes are having to kind of that level of kind of user experience? Because how do you measure the anxiety levels of someone interacting with a piece of content or a page?
1: Right, so that's a, that's a good question. I, they, uh, the, the, the categorization of these factors or these problems, we call them on, on pages, um, so is sometimes arbitrary, but what you know when we're uh, a strategist. There's a there's a part art and a part science to it, and part of the art is coming up with ideas, looking for patterns, and seeing data that may imply something. So, for example, in, in a, on anxiety, they may see that uh, uh, you know from doing some focus groups or from some user testing, um, or even from some click heat map, that that people are are expressing or, or implying some hesitance or uncertainty in taking the action because something's missing from the page or something's on the page that might be causing that feeling and so they might say you know what this this baby this element or this missing piece may be causing anxiety or maybe they have anxiety about the brand or the product that we haven't done enough assurance around to try to uh, compensate for and and that in itself might not give them enough confidence that they really know that this is an anxiety factor. But then that's why we always have the validate side. So we've been talking about sort of exploring um, where there's data, you know, maybe they do some focus groups, maybe they do some user testing, maybe they do one-on-one deep-depth uh, uh, interviews or just show their website to their mom <laughs> or whatever, right? There are all kinds of different um, methods you can use in Explore to come up with ideas, right? That's just the ideation process. And so they might say, okay, you know, maybe these are a bunch of anxiety things on the page. Or now we go into validate and say, let's let's pick out some that we think are the most important potential opportunities here and then isolate these as tests and validate them. So then we go into A-B testing. And A-B testing, you know, is a very simple conceptual process. It's basically just showing different pages to different website visitors or different ad viewers. And then tracking them and using, making sure that it's structured in a way that's controlled so that the only variable you're changing is the variable you want to test or the question you want to answer. And then tracking those in and getting statistical significance and making sure that um, you're tracking it properly. So in, in an anxiety question we might say, oh you know what people aren't sure about this product and there's no reviews on, on this page so maybe by adding some reviews it'll reduce their anxiety. So we could Add reviews into one version and track the conversion rates and track the revenue um, by version, and then see if that if that hypothesis is true. Now we've learned something um, that that potentially could be uh, an anxiety reducer.
0: So I'm guessing over the years you've seen hundreds or maybe thousands of conversion pages or, or landing pages. Uh, and I hate to do the best practices like what's the the number one thing people should fix, but there's got to be something you see all the time. You're like ah, uh, you know, once again you've Done X, and that's a you know this is one of those things which is a super distraction for customers to convert. Are there are there any of these things that you're just you know face palm every time you see it?
1: Well, you know uh, there are actually piles of them that we see over and over and over again, that uh, that uh, you know almost always reduce uh, conversions or results. And you know one of them that I talk about famously is the rotating homepage carousel, right? And uh, and it's It's um, I blogged about it probably five years ago, uh, saying that we've tested this many times and it almost almost invariably loses. But still, I went to Oracle's homepage uh, last week. I went to Walmart's homepage just recently. They still have the rotating carousel up there, and they still haven't tested them. They still don't know that they're hurting their business right now. um, And it's uh, because it's solving a need for them. It's solving a pain for their designer who's run out of space and has all of these competing internal interests to try and get their messages on the web page, and they don't think about the user. They haven't done the, uh, a user-centric or design-thinking approach to building their, their experience.
0: That's interesting, too, because in the paid space, almost every network is kind of rolling out their version of carousel ads for that same reason, right? We want to show more ads in the same space uh, right. and they want feed based ads and all that. So I wonder if that extends to the networks as well. You know, Facebook is pretty famous for doing insane amounts of testing on new features. Um, but they have this thing called a carousel ad. And I wonder if same thinking applies that those kind of drop engagement, because, uh, yeah, like you said, users don't want to click through a series of, of ads or for whatever reason, it's not engaging.
1: Right, and, and there are ways to do it. There, there are often uh, nuances in how they're executed that, that can make them effective in some ways. Um, the, the problem that what normally happens is is on a home page or on, a, on a, a website, often they'll be automatically rotating. and, and it, So think about from a user perspective. They arrive on this page, and the first thing a user has to do is orient themselves to how this is designed, because every page is designed differently. So, they're trying to figure out, okay, what, you know, at first, of all, am I on the right page? Okay, this looks like the right company I was trying to find. Um, what's What kind of content am I going to expect here? How does the navigation work? Uh, what's the main message I'm trying to see here? And, and is it what I was expecting? So, they're going through this sort of uh, question answering page, going through basically answering the lift model. Is this the right value proposition? Is it relevant? Is there clarity of their communication? Am I anxious about anything? Is there distraction, urgency, whatever? And then, so they, they by the time they get to understanding the message that's on the headline of this this page, they've they've basically, you know, just about to understand it, and maybe they've got a little bit of interest because they're saying, oh, that you know what, maybe this is something I'm, I'm curious about, and they try to find the button to, to click on, and they're just about to click on it, and the whole page changes <laughs> immediately, and they have no idea what just happened. Now they have to reorient themselves, like, hang on, what just happened? Like, this, the world just changed, <laughs> you know, and... They're not web designers, and they don't understand that you've just rotated it, and it's going to come back around, and they're trying to figure out how to get back to that previous message. And uh, from a user's perspective, it sucks.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm laughing over here because I never thought about it, but I've had that same experience dozens of times. And then I'm like, same thing. Then you're like, do I have to find those circles and go back to the image? Or are there going to be arrows, or can I just wait? Or is it ever going to come back? Because I really wanted to, you know, I only kind of like... Going through that cognitive process you're describing of like making that instant evaluation and then all of a sudden everything changes and it's like a shock to the system. Right, exactly.
1: And so I think the biggest problem for is that most marketers don't think about the users or customers' perspective that in-depthly. And and it takes a lot of effort to do that, to not think to think sort of outside of your marketing pressures and what you're incented to do, and to think about what did they want. And how can I meet their needs as well as the business needs?
0: And I feel like it's not new, but maybe it's it's new to the conversation that, you know, marketing is quite, well, I don't know. I don't want to put a percentage on it, but uh, psychology plays quite a strong role in, uh, in marketing, obviously, because you're trying to influence behavior and to influence behavior. You have to understand the underlying um, kind of motivations or fears that motivate people to make changes or take action. And it feels like recently marketers have understood that actually having this kind of psychology background might be really useful because the thing we're talking about right now is if you don't think about the user and what's driving them to make decisions or not make decisions, you know, you're not you're just going to think what looks nice on the page or, you know, like you said, change some some button colors and you can go crazy trying to make hundreds of of changes uh, without stopping to think about the reasons on making them. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I wonder, do you ever like push people into actually learning more about uh, some of the behavioral sciences or, or getting more educated on the psychology behind some of these decisions
1: absolutely in fact the, um, the persuasion principles and understanding psychology is one of the five factors of the Explorer phase of, of um, the infinity process so so we and you're absolutely right there's right now so much research going on in the fields of uh, behavioral psychology, behavioral economics, uh, neuromarketing, and you know all of these, you know some some buzzwords and some like legitimate uh, fields of study that are that are happening and and applied to various um, uh, kinds of um, uh, fields and, and areas. And so we actually spend a lot of time as a, as a team uh, and with our clients looking for these. Uh, you know, looking through marketing journals and through the psychology journals and the articles and trying to find these uh, or filter through all of these studies and find ones that might apply to user experiences in in marketing. So, for example, just recently we did a test on uh, an affiliate marketer's uh, landing page where um, they had a banner that was trying to, it was on a content page, trying to get people to um, an insurance quote, you know, basically redirecting them to an insurance landing page offer. And so we had been testing, actually, for a couple years on this banner and the, and the funnel uh, with various types of messaging and creative and design and, um, and, and flow experiences. And then we found a study that, uh, that was done. It was a meta-analysis of, of a bunch of studies, actually 42 studies, by a professor at the Western Illinois University. His name was uh, Chris Carpenter. And sort of this obscure little study that showed that um, by comparing salespeople's pitches, they, they analyzed 22,000 participants in sales pitches and found that the salesperson who used some sort of wording that said, that implied that the choice is yours, or that the one you choose is up to you, or it's up to you which one you choose, if a salesperson included that statement within their sales pitch, they were twice as effective in closing the sale, and so we thought, well, I wonder if we could apply that somewhere to any of our clients, and 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 we you know analyzed all of the opportunities and said, oh, let's try it on this affiliate banner, and so we actually went and uh, added in under under the headline we added a subhead that said, the one you choose is up to you, and simply by, and that and that subhead added no new value. It didn't communicate anything new it didn't say anything about the product, Uh, it simply reduced their anxiety and used the psychological trigger and it increased their revenue site-wide by 19% Hmm. and and what we had done is just you know it was simply like digging through this haystack of psychological principles to find one new thing that we would never seen before and and then test it out. Um, So there are all kinds of those opportunities just waiting for, for marketers but it takes effort and Uh, a lot of resources to to go in and and stay on top of all the studies that are coming out.
0: Yeah, part I mean, that's an inspiring story in many ways, and then also kind of daunting, right? Because then I'm thinking your average marketing team is not going to be applying through all the uh, Psychology Today articles to find principles to apply to testing. And there already feels like there's a million things you're told you need to go test. And it's a little frightening to think, and there's a million more you never heard of. But I guess it's also what makes marketing interesting, right?
1: It's true, yeah, and it's so interesting because it's all about people, and people are one of one of the most fascinating areas of of science and discovery because we're we're still trying to figure out how this brain of ours works. Um, but you know, luckily there are uh, also a lot of really approachable books and resources on uh, on some of the things that have been known for a while that, that marketers may not be uh, implementing properly yet. Um, so, for example, like social proof, you know, it's 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 been talked about a lot. It's fairly well known. It's this bandwagon effect they call it, um, where you know it's it, marketers know people tend to put trust in uh, what other people say or what many other people say. That's why the Amazon reviews work so well. When you see you know more and more stars, or star ratings, and more and more people uh, liking the review and saying that it was useful to them, that's social proof. And so there are various ways of of testing how to incorporate something like social proof into your
0: marketing. Uh, the newest one. So you make me think of our recent election here in the United States, cause you're up in Canada somewhat. Uh, well, correct me if I'm wrong. You're up in Canada. Yeah. I am right for, now. Yes. And you'll probably stay there for the next four years if you're like, uh, <laughs> most of the marketers <laughs> I talk to. Um, right. but I want to go down that path. I don't want to make it contentious for, you know, people who voted for <laughs> Trump, uh, and our marketing, like, like all stars have at it. Um, but the there's a lot of talk about this cognitive bias because you know we're all reading the news we want to read and we're finding patterns we want to find, et cetera et cetera. So I wonder if uh, that's another kind of topic where maybe it makes sense to get uh, informed on patterns of cognitive bias and in some ways, you know see if you can use them to your advantage to make it easier for people to you know decide they like your product because you know they've seen it before or uh, I forget there's like 10 like core biases in the, uh, uh, cognitive bias list, but anyway, I feel like that's another kind of core principle most people should figure out.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Cognitive biases are are some of the most interesting um, area, and that's where a lot of research is done on in behavioral economics. So, you know, for someone who's new to this topic, you can start by reading uh, like Dan Ariely. Uh, he's got a few books out about um, uh, uh, the you know the cognitive biases. He calls his first one was Predictably Irrational and it, it goes through essentially why we make bad decisions and how as marketers perhaps we can uh, leverage those things and, and as consumers perhaps we can o- overcome them or at least just recognize when we're making those kind of predictably irrational uh, decisions. And, uh, and there's many more as more and more studies come out, so the, the list is growing. I, think.
0: I have taken the latter advice as a consumer and a general human being. I've, I've pretty much said I can't control these things no matter how enlightened I think I am or how well-read or self-aware or any of that stuff. I just – once you see them, you're like, oh, man, this really is me. I do all these things that he's talking about. Um, right. And <laughs> I've instead decided to say I'm, I'm not going to beat the system that's wired in my brain. So now I'm just going to try to, like, use those in my own life to try to uh, make good decisions uh, rather than fight well, the tide, which I think most people, that's their – instinct. It's like, well, I'm going to make sure that doesn't work on me anymore.
1: Well, and to get very meta, I think you can uh, really congratulate yourself for overcoming a typical cognitive bias yourself already by uh, not assuming that you're smarter than the average human to overcome the cognitive biases. Because one of the cognitive biases is that we tend to think that we're, all of us tend to think we're above average. And uh, and so uh, I think uh, it's really interesting that you have uh, recognized that you're uh, a human. And, (laughs) <laughs> and are, are going to fail in the typical way that a human does.
0: Right. I think a lot of it is helped by the fact that I've been marketing for a long time. And every person you ever tell you're marketing, it gives you the old, oh, ads don't work on me. And uh, <laughs> right. and you just kind of, you decide, do you want to have a conversation or just go, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. But, you know, it's a whole trillion dollar industry built on something probably. But, <laughs> but whatever, they don't work on you. Um, right. So let's talk a little bit about the practicality of bringing this into a client. So it sounds like it could be pretty overwhelming if you don't have a clear kind of project plan. So how do you how do you kind of kick off an engagement and set some realistic expectations with a new client?
1: Yeah. Um, so we uh, so that's um, we we actually have focused a lot of time over the last ten years on building a client experience that includes uh, these. What we call aha moments, and the aha moments are are often the test results that are coming out, um, but often just the experience of working together and um, and realizing that you've got a team that's got your back, that's that's got your best interest, that's really trying to uh, deliver results on a daily basis. And so you know we have rhythms in place for engaging with our contacts at clients, and we've got weekly status update meetings, and we've got monthly. Um, ROI reports and um, and and education that goes along with the process where um, you can tell in Canadians because they say process and uh, it makes fun of me for not saying process but um, we uh, you know bake into the process um, uh, learning opportunities so saying okay here's the here's the rationale behind this test here's how uh, what we're going to learn from it. Uh, here's the persuasion principle we think might apply here, and if it loses, we'll be we'll learn something new and say that doesn't work in this situation or whatever it is. So, uh, baking into the experiments uh, the the growth and insight as goals, and hopefully, uh, and also um, uh, making sure there's you know we're responsive. So do things like we've got um, uh, net promoter score surveys that. Um, Uh, a lot of company has become very popular lately so we send net promoter score surveys to our clients on a regular basis we actually also do that internally with our team we have a weekly uh, NPS survey so all of these things have you know sort of evolved into really uh, refining the process of client service and delivering results but essentially the kickoff is all about uh, focusing on the goals of the company and the and our clients and getting ROI so we focus a lot on this ROI um, uh, spreadsheet and making sure that we're delivering at least four times ROI on their engagement.
0: And, you know, they always say data's only, or the insight's only as good as the data that's going into it. So, and working with, you know, hundreds of agencies and direct clients over the years, I feel like the first thing you encounter is the whole, what is the conversion to you? Is that accurate? Attribution models, uh, updating conversions when they, you know, kind of fall out later on or the product gets returned or, um, do you, I don't know, how do you approach that kind of mess that is conversion tracking, and do you have some way to make sure that the the data you're getting is is good enough to make these decisions based on?
1: Right, yeah, and, <clears throat> you know, we're always trying to uh, refine the, the tracking mechanisms to make sure that it's as accurate as possible, and there, there's always going to be some level of pollution in data. There's always going to be some level of question on... Um, on how we can continue to improve it. And you know, luckily there uh, it's an evolving process that, that does continue to have opportunities for improvement. Um, and one of the ways that we can often do that is by, is by validating the, uh, the, the tracking methodology itself. So sometimes it takes time and we have to, in order to balance the needs of accuracy versus uh, speed and growth, Sometimes companies need to make trade-off decisions. So in the drive to have perfect confidence and perfect accuracy, we can also leave a lot of money on the table. And so we need to have that open conversation about, you know, where what's an acceptable risk and what is most likely to be uh, accurate and, and reliable and wh- and where do we balance that? Because different cultures within organizations have different appetites for uh, for risk and accuracy, so that that is part of the conversation for sure at, at kickoff <clears throat> and in setting up the experiments, because ultimately the technical side of running A/B tests or tracking anything is reliant on business decisions about what what is the right thing to track and what's the the right level of accuracy. So, for example, um, with Magento, they're one of our clients um, where we were trying to increase the uh, the leads generated for their Magento enterprise sales team but at first they had a question of what's the right kind of lead and what's the value of a lead how do we know whether we're getting good leads and so at first they were they were uh, generating leads uh, that were for uh, demo requests and and so we, we started by creating an experiment that tested Demo requests as a call to action versus talk to a specialist as a call to action. Or, you know, some, there was a, a, a series of different types of calls to action that implied a different level of commitment. And by testing that, we could first test which kind of call to action increases their conversion rate, so increases their total uh, leads. But then more importantly, we wanted to track all of the opportunities generated over a, a, a span of... a several months that that took into account their um, decision cycle for their customers and their seasonality and then look at the value of the leads and the ultimate opportunity conversion rates for each of those different types of calls to action and the purpose of going through that effort which is you know a lot of different a lot of effort to to go through we we realized that 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 getting a demo um, was actually or I should say talking to a specialist was eight times as valuable a conversion as as asking them to get a free demo. So there was less um, uh, commitment by the the user, and it also had a very similar conversion rate. So we we're able to then feedback over that process uh, the, an insight about their 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 users that these are the these are the types of calls to action that we should actually be optimizing for, and then we can roll out the rest of the optimization program, making sure that we're actually tracking to the right thing. You know the right conversion that are maximizing uh, ultimate revenue for the
0: company. That's a great example, and I, in my head, one of these cognitive biases probably is then I go, "Ooh, that's a good idea. We should go try that because we added a demo button." And uh, but then you know you got to step back and realize that every experience, every website is so different that a lot of these things aren't globally applicable. So you know, right. depending on the level of trust, when you're setting up a Magento product, which is pretty core to your e-commerce experience, you might have a much higher bar in terms of credibility and trust or skepticism versus uh, our product is 14 day free trial, no credit card. So you might, um, it might not, th- that anxiety might not be there. So just if you're listening and you're thinking, oh, I'm gonna take all those demo buttons off my website, uh, probably instead it makes sense to go test that uh, to use your famous line. Um, <laughs> right. But you should test can, that should test it and see if for your website and your product and most importantly the consumer buying your product um, is that causing the same impact um I have kind of a random question because you dropped a little nugget in there which I find interesting and we have a lot of folks that listen to this uh, show that are kind of own their own agencies and they're kind of like either one-man shows or they have uh, small agencies with like five to ten folks um And you mentioned doing internal MPS because at some some shows we talk about hiring and how do you hire good account managers and keep them because it's probably the hardest thing to do uh, if you're an agency right now. Um, And you mentioned this internal MPS, so can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so it's something that that I implemented a couple years ago with our team. And uh, I I realized that we were spending a lot of effort – keeping our clients happy and asking them for feedback and and I really was driving for making sure that we're getting regular MPS feedback from all of our clients so we can have better prediction on on their satisfaction and how we can improve their experience Um, but but at the time it felt like we were neglecting perhaps our most important uh, asset as a company and, and our team were just you know, expecting them to continue to work and be happy <laughs> without really understanding why <laughs> they were uh, happy or not. And so we started this internal NPS survey and so it's, it goes out weekly on a Friday morning um, now where everyone on our team uh, fills out a survey and they and it, in fact it it has um, typical NPS questions uh, and also has a shout out section where our team members recognize each other for who they think was awesome this week and and specifically how they represented our company values in the work they've been doing over the past week and then we um, compile it and, and on Friday uh, afternoons we have our uh, our weekly beer fridays where everyone gathers around and, and we've got a we've got a tap in the office everyone you know pours himself a beer and we have our um, we have what we call our Friday awesomes, actually, where we, uh, uh, everyone goes around and everyone in the company talks about either an awesome or an awful that happened uh, work or, at work or personally that week. And then we, and we have a, you know, uh, all the shout-outs from everyone that's been recognized for living our values. And so, I mean, it, it, to some extent, yeah, it, it, for some companies or some people, it may start to sound like a bit of a Tony Robbins experience itself, but, uh, <laughs> um, but really it's about connecting with our team and and reflecting on what's important and uh, and recognizing each other for doing great work and and we really have a team of a players so they all just uh, love having the experience of of uh, recognizing each other for
0: that. Well, I talked to a founder of another agency here in San Francisco that is pro- well, it's not San Francisco anymore. I think they're in Denver, San Francisco, New York, about fifty people and growing. And it's funny because he said something similar to to you, um, kind of kind of joking uh, that they're doing a lot of coaching uh, and training but they're starting to take a much more uh, i don't know how to call it without making it sound condescending but um really asking people for honest feedback and starting to get people in touch with more of the things that happen outside of work so i heard you say like you can get so at, at stage we do something called the wins meeting it's very similar to your awesome meeting where you give out wins to people who went above and beyond we don't do the other side of it which we probably call woes because i like the sound of wins and woes <laughs> but um <laughs> So we, we do that as well, and it's a you know it's a great tradition. Um, but it's interesting that you bring the personal element to it, because the the founder of this other agency was saying the same same thing. That really he finds most people's underperformance or dissatisfaction with the job is actually rooted in the fact that they're in the middle of a divorce or they can't handle criticism because some some stuff. Um, and I was like, wow, you're you know, HR 101 was like leave your personal feelings at the door for a hard day of work. Uh, and it sounds like people are now coming around to the fact that that's kind of bullshit and that, you know, people have a real life and that can influence work. So it's the second time I'm hearing, you know, folks running agencies, uh, or even tech companies that are starting to go there, which, you know, I'm sure the old HR head would like yell at you for, uh, but interesting. I, I think
1: that is changing. Absolutely. And I, and I think part of it has been, um, you know, I've been involved in these, um, in various mastermind forums personally as a as an entrepreneur and CEO and what what I've realized through that experience is that my performance as a entrepreneur and CEO is just as much personal as it is business and and so that's actually the the reason I brought that into the to wider funnel is recognizing that we're we're all whole humans we're not just business machines and that I, I would say that in my experience with with employees and team members, um, that probably the majority, if not a, a vast majority, of performance issues are personally related. And if we, we're not addressing those things, then we're leaving a huge amount of performance uh, opportunity on the table and leaving people without um, an opportunity to grow. And so I do see myself as a as an, as a, a people coach, as a you know to help people understand what what uh, how to deal with all kinds of things in their lives and and I think HR is changing in that way I think even especially as the Millennials come up uh, they're expecting that there is there's less of a defined line between them so this is a bit of a soapbox for me but uh, I, I totally agree
0: Well, and I'll connect you with this other founder because it's also become a soapbox for him. And he's talked a lot about, you know, he's kind of, uh, he has some co founders of the agency he's been working with for a while now. But the part that gets him excited is really this part of it where he's spending a lot of his time uh, doing these trainings and he's really seen the impact and, uh, you know, on employee retention and overall kind of productivity. But also it's, um, you know, it feels good when you help people get through some stuff in their life and they turn out to be, you know, kind of all around better. So it turns out they're, you know, more productive at work, but also, you know, it's a a good feeling to make that change in someone.
1: Yeah, and my goal has always been to create a place where my team members look back, regardless of where they go in their career, and look back at this as a special experience that they'll never forget in their career, in their lives. And in fact, you know, we've actually just last week, two of, of my team members uh, have decided to leave the company and they over the past years have become really close friends so it's tough but I know that they're for good reasons and they're, they're personally um, driven reasons that they, they need to leave uh, to be closer to family in New York and, uh, and, and yet uh, you know, <laughs> it's a great experience for me because also I introduced them to each other when, when they joined the company and they got married. Uh, a few months ago, and and they're you know starting a life together, and it's just been a a great experience. And these are not sort of uncommon stories because we're we're like a family, so it's uh it's it's pretty cool personally and rewarding.
0: Well, that is that's great to hear, and it it does lead me to my last and probably most important question, um, which is what beer do you have in your tap? <laughs>
1: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, we just ta- we just changed the tap last um, last week on Friday. Um, I'm going to say, I know it's a local brew, and I believe we have now are into a Saison. We were with an IPA for a while. Uh, I think it's something called West Winds or something like that. Um, but you, you caught me on the spot. I'm going to have to find out.
0: I think a Saison, a local Saison called West Wind, sounds realistic enough. <laughs> so, yeah. Um I just wanted – yeah, I was thinking it was going to be some of these uh, – some famous Canadian beer. You guys were doing craft beer before the U.S. in terms of like uh, yeah, mainstreaming. we were doing craft beer before. It was cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had friends who were into craft beer. Well, I guess their dads were into craft beer when I was like in high school. And they would always go up to Canada to get all this wacky stuff from Europe and some of uh, the you know, Fiend du monde and all that stuff back when it was pretty rare. Uh, oh, that's a great beer. So you guys are trendsetters. Congrats! <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, well, I really appreciate you coming on uh, the PPC show. We didn't talk much about PPC, but we did talk about um, kind of what happens after the traffic lands into your buying experience. And for me, really, uh, I'm going to sit with the marketing team and and go through kind of some of the kind of I think the lift models where we'll start because I don't think we've really done that in a while. We've kind of uh, said, "Hey, website's good enough." Um, so I think we need to go through and, and really look at it with fresh eyes using that uh, perspective that you talked about. So thank you for helping me and for all the folks listening in.
1: Yeah, and as you say, I know I, I blasted through a lot of information at the beginning, but um, there is a lot more. If you just Google wider funnel uh, lift model or wider funnel pie uh, framework or wider funnel infinity, um, you know, you'll know you find a lot more information in case studies and, and uh, uh, content about the, uh, those frameworks.
0: Great, I hear there's even a Linda course out there that you authored.
1: There is a Linda course, yeah, and uh, and the book, uh, The Zen Marketer's Guide is is also, you know, it's a very uh, a short book, um, but it really talks about the strategy as well, that's on Amazon now. Yeah.
0: Oh great, so I thought I was being, uh, looking in the crystal ball about The Zen Marketer, but you already published it, and it's out on Amazon.
1: Yeah, it just came out uh, a couple weeks ago.
0: Okay, I'm behind the times, all right, well then, that's another thing for folks to go pick up and and read and learn more. Can't thank you enough, Chris. Uh, appreciate you coming on the show, and we'll we'll go read up. Thank you, Paul. Enjoy. Oh. Have a good one. Bye bye.